All right, well, let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll get to God's word. Father, we praise you that our chains are gone. We've been set free. For Jesus Christ, your son, our God, our Savior, has ransomed us, has rescued us, has paid for us with his own blood. He purchased us that we might know the freedom that comes from living in your love. We pray that as we come to your word this morning, you would remind us of Jesus, that you would remind us of his purchase of us by his blood, that you would remind us of the freedom that he gives us through faith in his name, and that you would remind us of his presence with us as we live and serve and witness and worship in this day. Come, Lord, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sorry, I forgot to dismiss the children. So children, to the eight, if they haven't been dismissed already, are free to go to their programs. Well, last week I mentioned that there is a vocabulary, there is language, there are ideas that have come into sort of common Christian conversation that five years ago, and certainly 10 or 15 years ago, weren't really part of Christian vocabulary, Christian conversation at all. I want to mention a few of those things this morning. Things like toxic masculinity, patriarchy, phrases like respectability politics, purity culture, YOLO, you only live once. We talk today about the soft life, and we talk about spiritual abuse. Some words have been around a while, but have gained more emphasis. Feminism, womanism, equality, justice. We live in a moment when these terms and others point to significant problems in society and the church. In other words, these these terms have value. They not always have value in the ways in which they are used, but they do have value. So, for example, there is a view of masculinity that can only be described as toxic. It poisons the minds of men and damages the lives of women. There is a sinful, patriarchal attitude that leads to the suppression of women and the exploitation of men, men exploiting it. Purity culture, among many things, has shifted the responsibility for men's self-control onto women and their dress and behavior. Purity culture has promised to women, in particular, certain life outcomes if only they, quote, keep themselves pure. You only live once in a soft life. Messages that may encourage self-indulgence, materialism, and worldliness. Spiritual abuse comes in many forms. But every act of spiritual abuse involves someone turning the Bible and their authority 
into a weapon for controlling others. These are real problems. These things really happen. I don't think these terms are always understood or accurately used, but I do think that they often point to places of genuine spiritual rot in the world. And I do think that they, uh, things like toxic masculinity, purity culture, patriarchy, and spiritual abuse harms and damages people in deep ways. They damage both the victims of it and the perpetrators of it. Now, in response to these problems, lots of people wave the banners of justice and equality, of feminism and womanism. And under those banners, some people have argued that there is, A, no distinction between men and women, and B, that any distinctions are by definition oppressive patriarchy. And C, therefore, no authority, especially male authority, can be trusted. They seem to think that ending the problems and the abuses which ending is good, requires requires that we do away with any difference, which is impossible and bad. In their mind, difference equals inferiority and, and inequality. Now, that view of justice, that view of feminism, that view of equality, that view of womanism ends up making some people skeptical of the Bible. After all, in the Bible, we do see distinctions being made, for example, between male and female. We do see recommendations and commands being given based upon such differences. So when we come to a section of God's Word, like 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 15, we need to be careful that in using terms and ideas like toxic masculinity or patriarchy or even equality, we don't pick up a bias against God's Word. We need to be certain that we let God's word speak on its own terms. That we hear the Lord speaking clearly so that we understand him correctly. When it comes to men and women, we've gotten so much wrong. And when it comes to responding to that wrong, We have gotten so many additional things wrong. So we need a fresh hearing of God's word when it comes to men and women, and when it comes to their worship and service in the church. We need to perhaps clear out our minds and clear out our hearts so that God's word comes through clearly and accurately. To do that, I think it'd be good for us to begin this sermon with a prayer. A prayer of lament. You'll find it printed in your bulletin uh, on pages eight and nine. I'm going to lead us in prayer by praying the the light parts. And if you agree, I want to invite you to pray in response to bold parts. You don't need to pray this if you don't agree. But if the Spirit moves you and you do agree, then pray along with me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you do all things well. You do justice every day. Your throne is established in righteousness. Though you are a righteous God and we are your people, we have failed to act righteously in all matters involving men and women.
We have sometimes adopted and promoted ideas of manhood that are worldly, carnal, selfish, power-hungry, objectifying of women, and therefore toxic. We've created a culture in which the church, where the qualities of gentleness, kindness, sacrifice, and tenderness are assigned to women and men are are assigned to women, and men are taught to ignore these virtues. We've done this even though the perfect human being, Jesus Christ, was all these things. We confess that we have not properly considered the fact that women and girls are made in your image and likeness. They are equal to men and boys in dignity and worth in every way, but we have at times wrongly silenced, suppressed, alienated, abused, and marginalized them in the family of God. We confess that we have often made women to feel unimportant to the church's mission. We've made many women to feel that your gifts and callings to them are burdens to be rejected rather than grace to be accepted. We've treated our sisters as if they were unimportant to the Great Commission. In our failure to support and value women as necessary, we have often left them isolated and alone in crippling and crushing circumstances. We've sometimes pushed them into despair, hopelessness, and fear rather than hope in God. When your church should have been a safe harbor, we have often made it a dangerous sea for women. We weep for the ways your word has been weaponized in culture wars rather than offered as the word of life, sweet as pure honey and valuable as purified gold. We weep to see your word trampled beneath the feet of unbelief, politics, exploitation, opportunism, and greed. We cry for those who now bristle and tremble in fear as parts of your word are read because someone misused the scripture to harm them. All these things fill our hearts with sorrow and grief. Yet in our sorrow, we have hope. We are hopeful because we have a mediator, a heavenly advocate, one who lives to make intercession on our behalf. In our sorrow, we have hope. We are hopeful because you have given us the pure milk of your word by which you sanctify your people together now. For these and many other failures, omissions and sins, please forgive us and heal us in Jesus Christ by your grace. Please, by your spirit, give us grace to hear your word with faith and hope. Amen. So we have come to 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 15. And this paragraph is a paragraph that's all about proper worship. Remember, we have titled this series Instructions to the Church because that's what this letter is. Instructions to the Church about how to worship and how to live together as God's family. And if you want to sort of get a main point down for this section of Scripture and for this sermon, uh, it's a little bit long, but I might put it this way. The main point is this. The proper worship of God calls us out of our worldly cultural ideas 
of manhood and womanhood and calls us into something deeply challenging and wonderful. The proper worship of God calls us out of our worldly cultural ideas of manhood and womanhood and calls us into something deeply challenging and wonderful. And I might add, profoundly human. Profoundly human. We're going to think about this text under two headings. Uh, Our first point would be how men should worship. And our second point is going to be how women should worship. How men should worship in verse 8. How women should worship uh, in verses 9 to 15. How it is we offer together proper worship to God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, begins with these words. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. We make a couple of general points here before we sort of pull the text apart. First point is this, is that this is the first explicit reference to gender, men and women, uh, in this letter so far. Paul, as you've seen, addresses men in verse 8. He addresses women in verses uh, 9 to 15. Notice that the Bible is addressing men and women as kind of stable categories, right? So it's not giving us a picture of gender fluidity. Uh, but addressing these two genders that God creates at the beginning of creation. So it's possible to speak of expectations for worship and community that are expressed along the lines of gender, how men worship and how women worship. But even though the Bible, this is the second thing here, even though the Bible gives us gendered expressions in this paragraph, notice that verse 9 begins with the words, likewise also. So he addresses men in verse 8. Then when he begins to address women in verses 9 to 15, he says, likewise also. In other words, the kinds of things that he's saying to women are like those things he just said to men. The kinds of general expectations that he has of men in worship, proper worship offered to God, holy worship offered to God, are the same expectations the Bible has for women that they would likewise also offer what is proper and holy to God. So what we have here in this paragraph is a general principle of what's proper in worship that all men and women are meant to offer to God expressed now in sort of particular ways along the lines of gender. So here this text is calling us to be both alike and different, right, in our worship of God. Now, we're reading this letter. We come to this section. There are a lot of people who get mad Uh, I understand it, particularly if you've experienced the kinds of things we have just been lamenting. Uh, I I understand it, and and that's a reasonable reaction in so many ways. And uh, in that reaction, though, a lot of people want to reject Paul. Paul's a misogynist. Paul has got a thing against women, and I don't like Paul. I like Jesus, but I don't like Paul. Let Let me just sort of say, you know, 
Peter regards Paul's words as scripture, right? And so we ought, to, we ought to not act like Paul wasn't under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he wrote this paragraph. And sometimes people want to sort of play word games with Paul. Well, when Paul said this, what he really meant with that, what he really meant with this, or there's something in the background, yeah, okay, there's a place for that kind of scholarly study. But at the bottom, Paul's got a pretty big vocabulary, right? The words he chose were the words he meant under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so I want us to come to this realizing that not only is Paul writing, but God is writing. And his word is meant to be received with, with faith, right? And with understanding. So let's, let's pull this apart. Let's see what's actually said. And, and let's sort of give ourselves to it. So how should men worship? Paul says it there in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So I said last week, prayer is talking to God. So Paul is still talking about the prayer life of the church. Now he's singling men out to be examples, to be at the forefront of, of the prayer life of the church. A.W. Tozer put it well, we, we read this Thursday night Bible study, basically that true prayer brings us into the presence of God. So he's looking for men who are pressing into the presence of God looking to receive from God, looking up to God, to, to worship him. And as John Rope writes in his book on prayer, this is, this is the oxygen of the church, right? So men should be breathing the oxygen of prayer, pressing into the presence of God as their worship. Now, of course, other parts of the Bible call women to pray too. So, so, you know, we could go to many other exhortations where the whole church is meant to pray. But Paul here, writing to Timothy in Ephesus, is specifically addressing men and the need for men to be men of prayer. And that's good for us to hear in this age when too often we're tempted to think that prayer is kind of women's work. And men kind of get on about the work. Well, there's no work that lasts without prayer. And Paul is calling men here to pray. Notice now he says, in every place. So men everywhere are to pray. Everywhere the gospel goes, everywhere the church is established, it should produce men of prayer. Men who press into the presence of God and talk with him in supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings, laments, confessions, all kinds of prayer across nations, cultures, languages, education levels, and economic class, everywhere, in every place the gospel goes and the church is established, Christian men should be prayer warriors. Notice now, lifting up holy hands. Lifting up holy hands. When Chris and I had little kids, when the girls were, two, three, four, you know, one of the things you have to teach little kids is what to do with their hands, right? There's this, because of their sin nature, something don't go right, they're just quick to hit somebody, hit another kid, all those kinds of things, snatch things, and we just had this little thing. We, we'd take their hands and we would stroke their hands, or we would take their hands if they hit another kid, we would take their hands and cause them to, to stroke the other kid and say, no, 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 these are holy hands. Use holy hands. Right? That their hands are dedicated to God. Right? That, that the hands of men are, are purpose for the, the service of God. These hands are not to be used for seduction. These hands are not to be used for stealing. 
His hands are not to be used for fighting and brawling. They are for prayer. They are for worship. And according to the Bible, Christian men use their hands in prayer and in worship. They are hands that are holy unto God, belong to God. And then he says here, without anger or quarreling. It's weird to think about men praying while angry. But we can. We can do a lot of things that shouldn't be present while we're praying, can't we? Right? And so he says that without anger, without quarreling. Now, in the culture, and increasingly in parts of the church, hyper-conservative parts of the church, quote-unquote biblical manhood gets defined by being rough and independent, by being quick and decisive, by being super leaders. We said before, they view men as people who fix problems and, and, and don't consult God necessarily, or God's an afterthought. They fix problems with acts of power, with acts of aggression, with authority. Men are brawlers, basically. That's the picture of men in the culture, and I'm afraid it's the picture of men in too many hyper-conservative churches, but it's not the picture in the Bible. In the Bible, men pray, and the Bible's picture of men at prayer is that they are without anger and that they are not argumentative. They're not quarrelsome. They don't have an arguing spirit. Men in the Bible, in God's eyes, are peace-loving and gentle. Now, does toxic masculinity produce this kind of man? No, it doesn't, beloved. Toxic, toxic masculinity says that a man who does not fight is not a strong man. Toxic masculinity says that men must be like John Wayne or some other tough guy image. Read Kristen Dumais' book, Jesus and John Wayne. It will repay good reading. Toxic masculinity reduces what it means to be a man, again, to aggressive acts of power and control. It tells us that real men don't cry from the time we we're little boys. Real, real men don't lift their hands at church. Don't, don't get moved by the song. Don't let nobody see you cry a little tear. Don't get too expressive because it doesn't feel manly. Where'd that come from? It didn't come from Jesus. It didn't come from God. It didn't come from the Bible. It was right here. The Bible's like, no. The brothers in the church ought to be the ones with their hands up. The brothers in the church ought to be the ones lifting holy hands and praise to God, not just when we sing, but even in prayer. That kind of expressiveness is good and right for God's men. Now, I get it. Not everybody, you know, does the same thing. You know, some of us can worship and raise our hands, and we like three points, you know, like field goal. Other people, you do to carry the couch, right? You got your hands right here, you know. There are different kinds of lifting your hands. Do what's comfortable, right? But get them up. Get them up, right? Praise the Lord. I, I want you to notice, even from this one verse, that the Bible never recommends anything that resembles the toxic ideas of manhood in our culture. It never does. If you want to be a good and strong man according to the Bible, pray. Get on your knees, not on somebody's neck. Right. I want you to understand, the Bible does not give us a definition even of manhood and womanhood. Not, not like some prosaic definition. It tells us the fact that there are men and women. It, it tells us about what is appropriate for a man and woman, like in this paragraph we're reading here. It talks about how men and women should treat each other in singleness and marriage. It even talks about men and women at worship, but it never says this is what a true man is or this is what a true woman is. 
It never reduces biblical manhood or biblical womanhood to one thing. That's what toxic masculinity does. Men can be leaders and followers. Men can be assertive when necessary and gentle. Men can be athletic or bookish or both. Men can be competitive or cooperative or both. Men can be skinny and small or muscular and bulging. Praise God. You're not less of a man because you don't look and act like the rock. And you're not more of a man if you do. The Bible teaches that every man is made in the image and likeness of God. That, beloved, is where our dignity comes from. That's where our value comes from. The Bible leaves room then for every man to be a man in the way that God has made them. We don't want to squeeze men into the mold of a manhood made by the world. We want to squeeze men into the mold of Jesus Christ himself. We want holiness for our brothers. And here in this text, that means prayer, a life of prayer. So, brothers, when you are thinking about the question, what is a man according to the Bible, I, I think this text, God would have us, Paul would have us think right away, how's my prayer life? Am I pressing into the presence of God to talk with him? Letting him know all the things that I'm, I'm thinking about, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving. Am, am I having that kind of full, rounded conversation with God? Because that's what God wants from his men. That's what's proper in worship. Men should pray, lifting holy hands, without anger and quarreling, which are the besetting sins of Christian men, at least on the internet. It's anger and quarreling. God wants us to worship him in holiness. Well, the bulk of our text is really, again, addressed to women, so we'll spend the most of our time here. And there are four things that God says to, here, to us here about the proper worship of women in the assembly of the church. Four things. He, he sort of talks about the proper um, in, in verse 9, he talks about the proper dress, talks about proper discipleship in verse 10, proper disposition and role in verse uh, 12, and proper faith in verse 14. Look, look here at the proper dress. If men are, to, are told what to do with their hands, because men so often misuse their hands, then women are told what to do with their bodies, because men and women so often misuse women's bodies. So, but before we focus on what not to do, which is where the eyes always go, what I can't wear, how I can't dress, before we focus on that, let's be sure to let the Bible speak on its own terms. Let's focus on what it positively instructs. The main idea here is, likewise also, women should adorn themselves. That's the main part of the sentence, right? Women should adorn themselves. The word adorn just means dress. Women should put on clothes. I got one amen. Women should put on clothes. The Bible says that for women whose bodies are often objectified and misused and abused, proper worship includes dressing. Now, how should women adorn themselves? 
The Bible gives us phrases for knowing what kind of clothes. It says they're to adorn themselves in respectable apparel, the kind of clothes that everyone would honor and respect as good and wholesome. Then it says with modesty. Modesty means the dress is unassuming. It's not, it's not over the top. It's not lavish. It's not extravagant. It's, it's modest. It's, it's not too much. You ever seen somebody dress? You're like, that's too much. It's usually too little, but it's too much, right? And then it says, and self-control, fruit of the Spirit, right? And so our dress is teaching us and teaching others something about who's controlling our hearts. Whether it's God, the Holy Spirit, producing self-control, expressing itself in how we dress, or whether it's the world and the flesh and the enemy, producing other things, and it's showing itself uh, in how we dress. God wants his daughters to dress in a way that is proper for godliness. You see that there? The women who profess godliness. If we claim to know God and to follow Jesus, there's a way to dress that is proper. It's not only respectable and modest and self-controlled, but notice what Paul gets to there. It's in good works. In one sense, your best dress has nothing to do with the fabric you put on. It has everything to do with how you live your faith out in good works. So sisters, your, your main fashion cue doesn't come from the magazine at the checkout counter. It comes from Dorcas. Remember Dorcas in the book of Acts? This woman who was known for her good works and so much so the whole church wept when she died because she was always going around doing good. This is what God has saved you for. Ephesians 2 verse 10, he saved us and prepared each of us, male and female, prepared good works for us to walk in them. Titus 2 verse 14, God wants a people who are zealous for good works, male and female, here that good works is being expressed among women in this sort of gendered way, if you will, in how they dress. That's what God wants for his daughters. God should never blush, blush when his daughters leave the house. Should never be thinking, like, what, what you got on? Where you going? Because we want to be modest and self-controlled and respectable. Then the Bible says, now notice the negative part. Then the Bible says not to dress with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. I know this is where Paul loses some people. This is why we can't have nice things, you know. But Paul is not saying women can't actually wear jewelry or wear gold or pearls. I think there are two good explanations for this text, one of which comes from sort of scholarship about the time that I think is a little bit more speculative but might be true, and that is Paul is concerned about the fact that the temple prostitutes in pagan temples of the day dressed this way very extravagantly and lavishly, and, and he's drawing a distinction between Christian women and women in the world. Uh, that's possible. But I think we just, again, we're just trying to take this text for what's actually said, understanding that if Paul wanted to refer to the temple cults, he could have done that. He doesn't, though. I think what he has in mind here is materialism. I think what he has in mind here Contrasted to modesty is extravagance. You know how hard it would have been to get gold or pearls in the ancient world? That, that would have been a level of ostentatiousness, big word. That would have been a level of extravagant fanciness, right? Over-the-top fanciness that would have been out of the reach of, of most people and would have been a real waste of God's money. 
Paul is sort of calling them to modesty and self-control away from materialism and greed. See, DSW sells good shoes. You don't have to buy Jimmy Choo's. Right? I saw a wonderful thing on Instagram. <clears throat> Y'all see this story about Payless Shoe Store? The Payless Shoe Store did this little experiment where they opened up a, a very fancy high-end boutique in the mall and they named it Paylessi, like it was Italian. And they put the very same shoes on display, put big price tags on them, so a $30 pair of kicks. They put it up there for like $600. And then they invited all these social media influencers to the grand opening of Paylessi. And they're interviewing them. There are people in here, oh, like the quality of this. Look at this. And the design and the way it feels on your feet. I mean, they bigging up the shoes, man. Oh, and $600, that's a value. I'm going to be looking real good in these. So people go, they pay that money for those shoes. And then, and then the folks who run the store after that say, you know, these are the same shoes we put in Payless. A lot of what we think is fashion is delusion. It's an illusion. And because a man puts his name on it, we pay more for it, and then we think we have more status. It's an illusion. I love those old words from Calvin Klein, out oh, from Run DMC. Calvin Klein's no friend of mine. Don't want nobody's name on my behind. I think that's what Paul is piercing here. He's piercing the illusion of materialism and status and wealth and opulence and saying that's over the top for God's people who profess godliness. No, 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 no. Modesty, self-control, that's where you want to be. You want to be a good steward of both your body and what you put on it, right? And that's what's proper for dress. Now, let me say this about respectability politics and, and purity culture. If we say, beloved, we will not respect a woman or treat a woman unless she dresses this way, then we're guilty of respectability politics. If we say a woman is not to be valued or respected or believed because of what she wears, then we're deep into purity culture. That's because if we think these ways, then we are saying the woman's worth and the standard for her treatment is not the fact that she's made in God's image, but the fact that she doesn't live up to our image of her. There is such a thing as respectable dress, but failing to dress respectably does not give us the right to treat someone in unrighteous ways. I don't care if she walked down the street butterball naked. That does not give any man or woman to put their hands on or to mistreat her or to speak ill of her as if she's not made in God's image. That's how women start saying to the sexually abused person. That's how men start saying to the sexually abused person, for example, what were you wearing? It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. She's made in God's image and likeness. It's not about the clothes in that sense. That's respectability politics. That's purity culture. Paul here is not talking about that. He's talking about what is honorable in God's sight. That's a different thing. If you accept respectability politics or purity culture, you'll notice this now. You will misuse the very thing that is respectable or pure to mistreat others. 
But if you reject respectability politics and purity culture, make sure you don't also reject what is in fact respectable or what is in fact pure. Being respectable and pure is just another way of honoring and valuing yourself as God's son or daughter. That's always a good thing to do. And notice, notice now, secondly, proper discipleship, proper learning. He goes on in verse 11. Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Again, don't rush to quietly and all submissiveness without missing what he actually positively says. He says, let a woman learn. That's the main point of that verse. Let a woman learn. Now, that may not sound like much to you, but Paul back in his day. Let me give you an illustration. In 2014, Malala Yousafzai, forgive me for not pronouncing that correctly, she became the youngest person, to, uh, youngest woman uh, person ever to win the Nobel Peace Prize. She was 17 at the time. She brought international attention to the fact that girls were forbidden education in Taliban-controlled Pakistan. Even as a young child, 11, 12, 13, she had gone onto social media and began to sort of talk about those issues. And uh, the Taliban got word of it. They actually tried to assassinate her. Shot her on a bus along with a couple of her friends. They whisked her out of uh, Pakistan. They took her to the UK for surgery and other things. And she began to build her life in the UK and began to be an advocate for the education of girls. One writer said at the time that she was the most famous teenager in the world. But here's what I want to tell you. Her story of being denied an education, being denied instruction, was not unique to the Taliban and Pakistan. In many parts of the world today, girls still do not receive an education. Grown women are discouraged from an education, particularly a higher education. And beloved, lest we get too puffed up as American, it was just 70 years ago where women were largely discouraged of pursuing a higher education except to go to college and find a husband. We're not so far removed from these attitudes, beloved. In the Judaism of Paul's day, women and girls were not instructed by the rabbis. Even worship in the temple had a separate section for women, the court of the women. That's why Jesus talking with the woman at the well in John 4 was so radical. So when Paul says, let a woman learn, he's following the Lord Jesus' own example of discipling and teaching women. The only person who had in the New Testament who had more women partners in ministry and in community than Paul was Jesus. So when people start bugging on Paul saying he's a, he's a, he's a, a, a chauvinist and a Neanderthal and a knuckle-dragging um, hater of women, I'm like, come on, Paul down the street in Congress Heights? Because this Paul is actually revolutionary in the same way that Jesus was, including women in the discipleship of the church. Now, just to give you an illustration of how revolutionary this was, let me just quote you from some of the rabbis from Paul's day up through the Middle Ages. Here's one. Rabbi Baya bin Asher said, the female is irrelevant in creation as she's only like a leech, clinging to the main thing, taking from, from it for its usage. Another rabbi said this, woe to him whose children are females. The Midrash, Genesis Rabbah 17 says this, once Eve was created, Satan was created with her. Here's another piece. Whoever teaches his daughter Torah, the Old Testament, teaches her obscenity. It's the idea that the scripture was not appropriate for women. 
Rabbi Levi ben Gershon said about the woman, she has no more qualities than animals, if she even has a brain. She was created in order to serve. Later on in the Middle Ages, there's a rabbi, he wrote, the husband should not allow his wife to leave the house any more than once or twice a month if needed, since the beauty of a woman comes from sitting in the corner of her house. That's the cultural and religious attitude that Paul is writing into. But it is not Paul's attitude. It is not the perspective of the Bible. Paul is including women, uh, not excluding them the way other religions and societies have. He is affirming them as disciples when they have been marginalized in the Judaism of their day. Paul was being the Malala of the Christian church at his time. So before we consider the qualifiers, we must be sure not to miss the main point. The Bible here is creating a right for women, not denying one. Let the woman learn. Remember the likewise also? Remember that when you then read the qualifier, quiet and in all submissiveness. Ask yourself the question. Before, if, that, if that phrase makes you upset, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Ask yourself the question. When the preaching was going on in Paul's day, what were the men doing in the church? Were they allowed to sort of have a side conversation about the game while the guy is preaching? You know, were they allowed to just sort of stand up and start talking about whatever they wanted? No, the whole church is learning quietly and in submission. It's not gendered in that way. I mean, this is, this is instruction for the whole church. And we know that because this is precisely what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 when he says, hey, look, several of you guys want to prophesy. Several of you guys want to speak in tongues. Speak one at a time so that there's understanding. Well, why does he say that? So there's not chaos from everybody speaking at the same time. Let everything be done in decency and order. That's all Paul is saying here. He's not saying that because you are a woman, you must never speak in the assembly. We know that's not true also, as we'll see in a moment, because women prophesied in the early church, right? So don't let those things get in the way of understanding what's happening here. Here, the Bible is advocating for women, not oppressing women. Let a woman learn. Now, Paul comes then in verse 12 to the proper role in worship. When we come to verse 12, we get the one restriction in this paragraph. With everything else, the main ideas have been basically positive. Women should adorn themselves. Women should learn. Now we get a not as the main idea. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. That's pretty clear, right? What does it mean? As I said before, it doesn't mean that women can't teach or preach or speak at any time or in any place. Titus 2. Women, Paul says there, are to teach younger women how to, how to live out the faith. Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. Jesus calls the whole church, men and women, to make disciples. And then he defines what it means to make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. I said it just a moment ago, women prophesy in the early church. One brother had seven daughters. All of them were prophetesses. I think Paul has in mind here not just any kind of speaking or any speaking at all. I think Paul has in mind here the regular authoritative teaching responsibility of the pastoral office. That's why he says, 
not to exercise authority over man. He's thinking about the church when it gathers for public worship and the church's overall leadership. The, the office of pastor teacher is reserved, underline this, this word, for some men. For some men, not all men. He's going to get to the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. It's reserved for some men. Now, the question still is, why does the Bible teach this? Is it because women were routing in Paul's day and Paul is trying to correct that as some people write in their commentaries? Well, again, that's it. Maybe, but that's not the reason Paul gives, is it? Notice how Paul reasons about this. He gives us a, an argument from the creation order, and he gives us an argument from the circumstances of the fall. Here's the argument from the creation order. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. In, in Paul's view, that order of creation establishes a pattern of relationships in the church. Then he gives us the circumstance from the fall. And he says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, you know your Bibles, you know what Paul is thinking about. He's thinking about Genesis chapter 3. And Adam and Eve are in the garden. The serpent comes to Eve, tempts Eve. Eve believes the serpent rather than obeys God's word. The whole world is plunged into sin. Paul understands that that historical act of Eve eating the fruit and being deceived by the serpent is a secondary circumstantial reality that underscores this order. But notice two things now. Notice two things. Number one, Paul says the woman singular. He's not referring to women as a class. He's referring to Eve specifically. The woman singular was deceived, not women. Number two, Paul has a concern for deception, not just for women, but also for men. So when you look at the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3, verses 6 and 7, look over there with me. Twice Paul mentions his concern for satanic deception. He writes there that, that, that the one who wants to be a pastor must not be, verse 6, a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Paul is concerned about satanic attack on the church, whether you're male or female. Right? So again, if you've heard someone say something like, Women can't be leaders because they're more easily deceived than men. That's a lie. It's a lie. It's a lie from the pits of hell. It is not what this text teaches. It is not what the Bible teaches about women. So, sisters, please know that neither God, nor Paul, nor the Bible, nor the pastors of this church think that you are somehow inherently gullible and easily led astray because you're a woman. We don't believe that. We reject that out of hand. It's a lie. A specific woman at a specific time, Eve in the Garden of Eden, was deceived, and that became a secondary justification for what God had already designed in the creation order. And what I want to say to my sisters here at this point is don't kick against the design that God has for things. That's what Eve did. And as a consequence, sin entered the world and the whole world was distorted. God's design is for our good. It's for our good 
We know that because God is good, and God only does good. So how does this apply to the words that are so often tossed around in terms of feminism and womanism and all those kinds of things? The the irony is this, that so-called feminist readings of Paul miss precisely how Paul called for equality. That many feminists are are, are um, bristling against any difference between men and women. They think that automatically means inequality. But if you think difference means inequality, then you will miss right here the equality that's being championed. Let a woman learn. You'll distort God's word and you will in the name of feminism and justice and equality and womanism. You will distort, ultimately you can, you risk distorting what it is to be male and female by God's good design. We don't want that in the name of justice. We want actual justice in accord with the Bible. So some of you feel compelled to advocate for women. That's good. Women need more advocates, not less. And that's, given, that's understandable given all the things we lament this morning. But be sure your advocacy doesn't kick against God's word. Be sure it doesn't lead you to contradict his word. Now, let me insert right here just a footnote um, that I hope will serve us. I I am convinced of what I read here in 1 Timothy 2, that that it is um, specifying particular roles for men and women when it comes to the leadership of the church, that, that men are the ones who are called by God's design, qualified men to lead the church in this authoritative role of teaching and pastoring. I I need you to know that I know, and you should know, that there are very godly people who are as serious about the Bible as I am or anybody else is, who reads this differently, who read this differently, who, who read here a different kind of freedom for women to be pastors and things of that sort. I think they're wrong. They think I'm wrong. I trust we're both godly. And we're both wrestling with the Bible, right? So if you're here and, and you're part of this church and you have a different view on this, I ain't mad. We ain't mad as pastors. We probably ain't changing our view of the Bible, but you're welcome here. And this is not a test of fellowship and unity for us. We're not going to be divided over this. We're not going to kill each other over this, right? We're not, we're not going to just sort of reduce this into conflict when what we both believe we think God means for our good, right? So if you have a different view on this, I ain't mad at you. Just be convinced by the Bible, right? We want to build our theology from the Bible up. Don't be convinced by the winds of the culture. That's what I'm saying here, right? And we'll live in the peace and the unity that God's Spirit gives us. Let Let me make one other application to my sisters, because there are some sisters here who have a teaching gift, who feel called to teach and to use that, that gift. And because of the, the, the culture wars about gender roles, there are some sisters who are sitting somewhere between confusion and consternation. They don't know what to do with this gift. They don't know what to do with this passion. I won't tell you what to do with it. Use it. Use it. Use it in every way that God permits you to use it. We used to, I used to speak with um, a conference called Together for the Gospel, and all the guys at that conference, about eight or nine of us, we used to every year get together for uh, a retreat, encourage each other, catch up on each other's life, pray, plan for the conference. 
And almost every year we come to a discussion of this topic, complementarianism, egalitarianism, the role of men and women. And, and almost every year we, we would discover the thing that we discovered last year, that we had basically the same theology, but we had some significantly different practices. That some guys in their, in their complementarianism and their view of it, that they wouldn't have women lead worship. And some of us are like, you kidding? Them the dopest singers we got in our church. And more importantly than that, God's word nowhere says women can't lead worship. Where you get that from? Right? And some guys would never have a woman speak from the pulpit. And other guys would say, hey, we would not understand that a woman could be a pastor, but I don't see a problem with a woman giving a word every once in a while. So that the application was across a range. Right? Sometimes when we talk about these things, we act like the Bible has buttoned down every detail. And that if you don't, if you're not careful, we'll treat people like, if you don't practice my application, then you're in sin. Well, that ain't true. It's not true. We don't want that to be the flavor of how we talk about these things. We stand for the full flourishing of our sisters. That might even mean that you could be invited to do something at another church that you wouldn't be able to do here. And for us, that's okay. So if Pastor John down the street invites you as a sister to come preach at Women's Day, I ain't mad. I ain't mad. And if you feel convinced in your own mind from the word that that's not sin and, and that that's fine to do, go serve. Go serve the Lord. Go serve the Lord. I don't judge you. And I get this from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. When Paul says there that we are stewards of the mysteries of God, we're stewards of the gospel. And Paul goes on there to say, I don't let you judge me. And he says, I don't even judge myself. And he says that each of us will stand or fall. We'll give an account to our real Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're convinced in your own mind that the Lord would have you do something that your pastor might not think is wise. Notice I didn't say sinful. Wise. It's a different category. Go do it. Go do it. Serve the Lord, not your pastor. Serve the Lord with a clear conscience, not your pastor. So I want to just encourage you, if you've been stuck between confusion and consternation, saying, I, I'm a woman, is God against me? He gave me the, why he give me these gifts if I can't use them? He gave you those gifts because you're supposed to use them. And let's find the place where it's appropriate to use them. Go to the mission field, as Kayla and many others did with the Thailand trip. Teach and make disciples. Be a part of the Titus II ministry and teach younger women in the local church. If you get invited to do a special thing, um, to speak here, listen, I'm way off my manuscript. I'm going to finish this point. If y'all want to learn Hebrew, you ain't going to learn it from me. I don't know it. But Stacy Swanson does. If we're going to teach Hebrew, amen. If we're going to teach Hebrew, guess who's going to be standing in front of you? Stacy Swanson. And guess what she's probably going to have open? Her Bible. And guess what that's not? Sin. And guess what it is? Discipleship. So we're going to find places. Yeah, I can't give God praise. We're going to find places. Every place we can for women to flourish in the ministry that God gives them. The only place that I know that God restricts, and I'm convinced in my own conscience, and we share this as an elder, this is our position as a church, 
the only place that I am convinced that God restricts women from serving is right here in the role of pastor and the, and the sort of pastoral authoritative teaching of the word. Everything else is meant for all God's people, men and women. Okay? That's where we are. Amen? All right. Last thing, hardest thing, and so I'm going to do it the shortest thing. <laughs> verse 14, verse 14, Paul gives us one more comment there as he's talking about women, and, and he says there, yet, referring she, yet she. Who's he talking about there? Eve. Excellent. Y'all keep up, kids. Yet she, Eve, shall be saved through childbearing if she continues in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And there are many people who read that and be like, what? <laughs> what? Maybe even Peter. Because when Peter talks about Paul's writings and scriptures, he says there's some things in there that's hard to be understood, right? This, for some people, is one of them. But I think if we read it closely, it becomes pretty understandable. He is not here saying that, that women are saved by giving birth. That's not what he's saying. The she here, as I said, is Eve. What he has in mind is Genesis chapter 3. You remember what God promises to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. They have sinned, her and Adam. Uh, God has come and is judging them and handing out their judgments. And, and, but God says in Genesis 3.15, this word of gospel, that the seed of the woman, it's unusual language, isn't it? We normally talk about men and seed. But the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, shall have his heel bruised, but shall crush the serpent's head. When Eve sins, God gives her the gospel. God says, you're going to have a child who is going to defeat the one who deceived you. You're going to have a child who's going to crush Satan's head, and in crushing Satan's head is going to become your Savior. And not just Eve's Savior, but the Savior of the whole world. So when Paul, praise God, praise him. So when Paul talks about this same thing in another letter, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, here's how he puts it. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. I think what Paul has in mind here in this final verse is not some weird teaching that somehow by giving birth, women are saved. Not at all. He's talking about that woman, Eve. But then when he says more generally at the end of that verse, women in general, people in general, he has in mind Jesus and the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, the offspring of Eve, who came into the world in human flesh, who died in our place on the cross for our sins and was raised from the grave three days later for our justification and salvation. And this is the offer of the gospel. Everyone who believes in the seed of the woman, who believes in Eve's true son, who believes in Jesus, shall be saved to have their sins forgiven and live eternally with God. That's the free offer of the gospel to every woman, to every man, to every boy, to every girl. And that's what matters most. This is why Paul says, dash, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. In other words, if they continue believing in Jesus, faith, and they continue showing the fruit of genuine faith, love, holiness, and self-control, they may be sure that they're going to be saved. 
This is what God says to us this morning. We continue in faith in Jesus and allow the Spirit of the Lord to produce in us love and holiness and self-control and all the other fruit of the Spirit, we may be sure we will be saved. And it will all be because of a woman. Eve and Mary, those who give birth and gave birth to a Savior. For them we give thanks and them we honor which I think is what Paul is doing here. And then we praise because God uses our sisters to bring life and salvation into the world. And none of us would have it without them. So this morning, if you're not yet a Christian, put your faith in Jesus. Follow him into eternal life. Follow him into God's love. And particularly if you're here this morning and you're a woman, I, I don't want you to fear following Jesus. He will not crush you. He will love you. He will serve you. He will care for you with holy hands. And he will make much of your life just as he did Eve's. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this time in your word. Lord, we pray, help us to hold on to it. Help us to come back to it. Maybe, maybe online on the website or in our in our iPods or whatever we, however we listen. Help us, help us to hold fast to this word. And we pray, Lord, help us to hold fast to what's true and to spit out what's maybe false or a little bit off. Lord, sanctify us by your word. Sanctify us by your spirit. Perfect our understanding more and more each day. And help us to worship you in a proper way, Lord. May, may we be men who pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and without quarreling. And may we be women who Dress, Lord, modestly in self-control and, and, and who learn, who, who love to learn, who love to be disciples of Jesus Christ, who sit at his feet like Mary um, and, and drink in the truth of Jesus. And, and may we be people who live in your church the way you designed it to be. And may we not only honor you, but honor each other as men and women the way you call us to do, Lord. Fill us with your love and your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.